if you have a genius and you give him the power, you know, it's like giving, you gotta take that guy who wins all those swim tournaments. He's a big, tall guy. He had size 16 feet and they were webbed. <laughs> so no, I went all the time. The swimming tournaments of the world. And so Henry was in this metal stuff. He, he was like a guy who was size 16 shoes and webs feet. Competing with a bunch of ordinary people paddling in the swimming pool. And so he was fun to watch because he was so coolly rational. And so uh, imagine. You can understand how Berkshire, with Warren coming from investment management, would manage its own pension plans. But the world that Henry was in, it was not at all common for the guy who was the CEO to say, get out of the way. And of course, he did it way better than them. Forever, because they had silly rules and conventions, and he paid no attention to those. Another thing he did was, and Berkshire's done the same thing, is he was willing to and he was quite comfortable wanting both kinds of things. Many CEOs can't stand having anything around there, not down. But that's not Henry and that's not Warren Buffett. So there are some very close paramount. The thing that's interesting about it is when Henry was buying in his stock in Gobbs, that was a very uncommon thing to do. And now, of course, it's very common. You could say Henry is triumphs. But Henry wouldn't be buying in a lot of his stock. A lot of people buy in stock now when after it's selling for more than it's worth. They like promoting their stock higher no matter how it's <coughs> valued. And, and, and people like Henry and Berkshire want to buy our stock when it's cheap. It's amazing. We haven't had another Henry in a long time. You start to think about it. Who else is like Henry Singleton? It's been a long time since he's dead. It's not like we don't have a lot of smart people in the United States. But it's hard to think of somebody else who you'd say is another Henry Singleton. Tom Murphy's another CEO. Yes, but I, Tom is a very talented human being, but but Tom can't play a chess blindfolded. That is correct. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> can you Neither can I, by the way. He also had a long run in the chair. Can you share some of the characteristics you feel like made Tom Murphy so good? Well, Tom was marvelous. What Tom did was he delegated enormously. And what's really important, he went and did it himself. Very simple. And Henry was very simple. As a matter of fact, one of the last conversations I had with Henry, he called me and he knew he was dying. He wanted to sell Teledyne as his final act of Berkshire for stock. And I said, Henry, we're not going to issue stock or we give away a lot of businesses we know and like and understand to get into a lot of businesses we don't know and don't understand. It just can't happen. And he went on to do what he did. But it's just amazing how well he managed everything. You aren't going to see many Andrews in your lifetime. He was valedictorian in his class at MIT. He was valedictorian everywhere. You've talked a lot about the power of the fiduciary gene, Charlie. And it sounds like a lot of the people we're talking about certainly had those, the individuals had that in common. And it reminds me that you've considered yourself in the top decile in valuing the power of good and great management. And you've commented to me how you've still underestimated it your whole life. Do you have any thoughts or comments you'd like to share around us and, and how you've identified great management? Well, I think the great lesson of these careers is what I call a wooden lesson. And wooden, at the best, 
basketball coaching record in the world, and nobody else was even close. How did he do it? The answer was he concentrated almost 100% of the playing time in his top seven players. And of course, they got better and better wearing all the extra playing time. That's what happens when you give so much power to a wooden or a buffer or something. You're, out, you're doing the wooden system and it works like game work busters. And as an investor, if you can find somebody, even as a mini wooden or a mini single gun or a mini buffer, and playing time is all being concentrated in them and they have a long run, that frequently can be a very good way to invest. And some of these people, you can tell they aren't normal, some of these people. I've got another story on that, uh, what, not normal. Caltech has a Rubik Cube contest every year. And one year, the guy came in and gave him scrambled cubes. And he juggled three or four of them. And as they went by, he was twirling them in his hands. Even though they were constantly in pose and air, you know the upper top of that. He resolved all the cubes. The next year, in came a woman. She said, give me two cubes, all scrambled. And she looked at them for a long, long time. She put one in her left hand and one in her right hand and put them behind her back and started twirling. And then brought them up both things. <laughs> that really happened. There are people who make you feel like you were born into the wrong species. <laughs> spent my legal income when I was a lawyer, and I was shrewd in investing my little pittance of saving. And I actually had quite a bit of money by the time I in my mid-30s, and I think I would have. Just as Henry Singleton would look at Tex Thornton and think, I can do that better than that. Why am I this ordinary? A lot of talented lawyers are like that. It really happened to the Pritzkers. Pritzker and Pritzker was a law firm. Old man Pritzker, there's nothing my clients are doing, I can't do better. He just kept the name Pritzker and Pritzker and stopped practicing law. And the Bing said the same thing. Leo Bing was a genius. He was a representative of all these developers of Manhattan. And Bing and Bing it was called. And he just kept the name and he just fired all the clients and started doing what his, doing what his clients had been doing, which is develop apartment buildings. So we're always going to see some of that, but there aren't many people who can do it. There aren't many Sangalons and Pritzkers and Bangs. Leo Bang was so smart you can't believe it in building those buildings. Every time he built one of those big apartment houses, he bought a brownstone, four brownstones, so nobody could ever interrupt the view. And it was just such a logical thing to do it. And that's the way Hank Singleton was, just so remorselessly logical. You could say that. A life like Singleton's, what it demonstrates is the vast power of people remorselessly rational. That's actually a good transition to the next question. So, I've anticipated well. Henry, yourself, Warren, fiercely independent thinkers, which I've heard you attribute in no small part to your experience as a child in the Great Depression. When asked how old you were by Becky Quick, when you figured out the secret to life, you said, quote, seven. <laughs> <laughs> 
I realized, when I realized everyone was a little bonkers and there's so much irrationality in the world. He went on to say, you wanted to make money to have independence of life. Yeah, so the Great Depression was understandably formative for you, but many people's worlds shrunk dramatically while yours seems to have opened up and laid the groundwork for many of your mental models and so forth. Do you have a formative experience that's seared into your memory from when you were seven up from the Great Depression that has led to all of this? Well, of course it was an advantage to see the Great Depression. There had never been a depression that long in the civilized world. It just didn't go away. It had fluctuations. But basically, we went into a big depression and they threw everything out that they thought they knew how to throw away. And it just stayed there. And the only thing that finally cured it was World War II. And the really interesting case was Germany. Germany had wiped out its currency in the Weimar inflation following World War I and created vast hardship. But, but when Hitler came in with his crazy paranoia and wanted to rearm and so forth, he created this big artificial Keynesianism. And Germany, in spite of having debauched its currency, by the 1938 came along and Germany was the powerhouse of Europe. The accidental Keynesianism of Adolf Hitler and restored Germany, and the new Reichsmark that Hitler created, even though it was spending money crazy on war preparation, that made it a very strong currency. And by the way, I think the government should be issuing the currency, not a bunch of private, you know, was. <laughs> <laughs> was there, what happened at seven? Well, well way to back you, but I could see something very interesting. My father had this brilliant friend whose father had been the chief mathematician at the University of Nebraska. And he played the violin, he was mechanically gifted, he was an enormously talented man. But he'd been very poor because in those days a mathematics professor at the university got paid directly nothing. And this man had conquered poverty, you know, those years of scholarships and 90-hour weeks and could be surgical residencies and so forth. And he finally, and of course I loved him and admired him, and I treated his house as an alternative house for me. I went back and forth because he had children my age. And one day, the man got a leak in his house, and it cost an extra cost. And he frankly went berserk. You know, all that poverty had made him just extra careful. Things like leaks, and of course a surgeon would be pretty fanatic about leaks too. But anyway, he went berserk a little bit, and I thought, God almighty. There's this genius going berserk in a world where even the geniuses are that nuts, I have a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Warren telling the story. Yeah. I don't know if you were with him or not. He went to Vegas when he was quite young. I think yeah. my but, and he said, boy, he saw all the irrationality was taking place. He said, I'm going to do okay in this world. <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same idea exactly. Yeah. There's going to be opportunity. There's so much irrationality out there. And of course, that. That occurs in the investment world, too, for sure. You've mentioned, uh, you've often said, in fact, we should all find ways to learn from the imminent dead. And some of your heroes, not, not exclusively, Kuan Yu, Otto von Buzmark, Deng Xiaoping, George Marshall, they all seem to have a sense of duty and honor as a common thread. And you also talk about the rarity of the fiduciary gene, which they also seem to exhibit. Are there other traits you see in these individuals that led them to become your heroes? 
Well, I like the fiduciary team. Think of the difference between somebody like George Washington, who voluntarily left power, say, as an example, and these paranoid brewers that come into power and start killing people to sustain power and trying to subvert the systems and so forth. And of course, the George Washingtons are way the hell better. I don't know exactly how you make George Washingtons and why you get Kim Jong-un or something when you some other place. Certainly the George Washingtons are better. There's one thing the current world is teaching us. Is that our forefathers who gave us term limits were, they understood human nature. They were, they were trying to prevent some major risk. And it has worked pretty well so far. A couple exceptions here and there. Yes, oh yes, no, 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 we've had people who tried to, we've had several attempts to take over the United States, but including Aaron Burr. In addition to being an independent thinker, Charlie, you have an insatiable intellectual curiosity. I think that's why everyone is here this morning and admired you, which leads to an incredible range of interests. And I've heard you refer to many times as a polymath in a world that's full of specialists and seemingly increasingly specialized. How about modern-day Ben Franklin? You and I have talked about Ben Franklin a lot. Have you had a chance to see the Ken Burns PBS special? I loved it. It pointed out that he held slaves and he never freed them and so on and so on. He wasn't perfect. Uh, and, no, I love him, frankly. You should all see it. But I don't think Warren goes around making these pieces and saying you really don't need to be very smart to be a very successful investor. And I think Warren is right. It's, it's a field where the temperament it isn't that they have the extra horse, metal horsepower that Henry Singleton had. That is helpful, but it's perfectly possible to do splendidly well if you have the right temperament and just go at it over a long time. You talk about me, I'm not a polymath. What I am is a guy who has been able to take moderate obsession and a long attention span and turn them into pretty good results. Of course, a long obsession is not. Long attention span will help you a lot if you're reasonably smart. Of all of your varied interests, what are you, what are you the most interested in today? Is it architecture? And no, I'm more, I'm more interested in the investment operations of the world. I'm interested in the others too, but the ones I can't fix, I don't spend much time about. I don't know how to fix a paranoid world. I'd love to be able to wave my hand and solve that problem, but I don't think that's given the man to fix some of those problems. So I just stay away from the problems that can't be fixed and pick the ones. I don't like unlimited failure. I don't want to fish forever and never catch a fish. I have to have some reinforcement. So I pick some things that can be done and then do them. But I, I do think that if you're reasonably obsessed with something, even if it's intermittent, and you have a long attention span to keep working over the serious problems and got you to stumble into an answer. And that's half the secret of life. In Well, these buildings I've been talking to, you'll kid me because I don't have many windows up. The Munger building at the University of Michigan is a little short of windows. That's because it's so damn big in footprint. It has an automatic window shortage. Well, how did I decide to do that? Well, I knew the students would be better off close together. Get close together, I'm going to get window shortage. Absolutely unavoidable. And so, how in the hell can I handle this? Well, I went to the cruise ships and figured out how they handled it because they were keeping people very happy. And most staterooms, not most, but a lot of staterooms on a cruise ship can't have real window. And they used artificial windows and they had a system where you could leave your own place and go out to light and air. 
all kinds of things. So I just I just copied cruise ship architecture. What kind of a mind in designing a dormitory imitates a cruise ship? Well, that's what my mind does. And you can see it's coolly logical. That's the kind of mindset over there, too. He just was coolly logical. But if you don't think of the cruise ship, you get the wrong answer. I think you told me a story about how the, the window, I've never gone on a cruise, but the window in the cruise ship, they actually have motion and so forth and so on, which I think he incorporated an admission building. Well, what the cruise ship did, what Disney did, of course, is for a long time, he charged more for the room with an artificial window than he charged for the one that had a real window. They stopped doing that finally, but they did that for years and years and years. Now, the reason for that was that the, a Disney window in a cruise ship, it was an artificial window, a little starfish came out and winked at your children. And of course, a real window wouldn't do that. Does he use prefab material in Michigan, if I remember correctly? Is that, is that right? Well, no, prefab. I used, yeah, I, I caused Michigan, which had not built a precast concrete building. They had one on the campus somewhere, but nobody even remembered who built it or why it was that old. And they did, we can't create a, we have to make this out of poured concrete, because that way we, we get three contractors, all of whom we trust a bit on. I said, you can't talk that way to me. You have to go talk to the guy who's the main precast person in Michigan. Listen to him tell you everything he can do for you, and then we'll decide well, how we're going to build the building. And of course, the, the precast was so much better. It turned out to be the toughest winter in the history of Michigan. And they had terrible troubles with quality and safety. They tried to build that building in the winter out of poured concrete. It's way stronger and safer. The building that's going in the UCSB is made way over a thousand pounds per square inch pressure. And that concrete will outlast the pyramids, I think. And that's the right way to do it. And it can't be done in the field that way. It can't be done that way in a vacuum. And they have ways of making the joinery safe. So these precast buildings are marvelous. You mentioned temperament. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But before we do, I want to come back to the concept of cigar butts because it's so important to really what led to the Berkshire that we all know and understand today. So investing is often referred to as the last liberal art or a social science of sorts. Well, it is a social science, of course. It is. And that plays well into your kind of varied interests and so forth. And so coming back to this transition that you helped Warren and Brian going from cigar butts to compounders, was that a, a sudden or a, a gradual awakening for you? Was there an epiphany of sorts? Frankly, everybody who's smart eventually makes that transition. They think about investments. Of course you can get to a great company, a great competitive advantage, stay in for a long time. That's the easiest and biggest money you can possibly make. But it's so hard to do because they bid the great companies or things that look like great companies up so high that, that it makes that strategy not work. Merwin Morgan Banking, they charged a quarter of a point and they bought the Nifty 50. They said, well, we don't care about the price or anything. So you've got to be in the Nifty 50. And of course, it was like a self-creating policy for a while. But when it went blowy, it was very unpleasant. So that's the trouble is that the money sells so high price that they make it hard for you again. But wouldn't you expect that? Why would you expect that something everybody could see, some great company? Of course they're gonna bid the price up so high that maybe it's not such a good investment. Was there one 
stock or business or industry that you recall kind of turning the light switch on for you? Because Warren was in the investment field before you were. You got to remember that Warren made a lot of money running his Geiger counter over the detritus of the 30s. And he'd find something that was selling for one-fourth of the liquidity value. He'd load up. And so over a long period of time, he had a happy hunting ground. All he had to do was go and list up liquid securities and slowly buy them. And he could get these ridiculous bargains. And those bargains went away. So he really had to change. Now, they haven't gone totally away. It isn't like there aren't some companies that are not great businesses, but they're still a good investment. I can remember Valero Petroleum, one of the biggest independent refiner. I, mean, I bought that stock personally at $17 a share. It was at LIPO, inventory is huge, buried reserves, selling below book value. It was just an incredible bargain. But it was still an ordinary tough commodity type business. And when it got tripled, I sold it. It's doubled since then. <laughs> but it took, that's a lot of years ago. But it's perfectly acceptable to invest in the Valero Pedrolians of the world. But I think the people who tend to get the best results are these fanatics. We just keep searching for the great businesses. And the best of them don't expect to find 10 or 20 or 30, they you know they got they find one or two. That's the right way to do it. And but that's all you need is one or two. I know the guy who the investment banker that back the Costco copy, which was Home Depot. He also backed Eli Lilly very early. He has several million dollars. So again, those two investments. He didn't need any more. And he in the lifetime of investment banking, that's what he got us too. I regret that as a successful life. And that isn't what they teach in our educational institutions. They think there's some mystery they can teach that will make you good at investing. It's total bullshit. <laughs> there's no way to know enough about a thousand different stocks to be very good at pictures. You insist on owning an eagle out of a thousand. If you want to be good, you have to pick a few. You have to adopt what I call a wooden system of stock picking. Warren talks about the 20 card hole punch. Oh, I love that. He said that most people would have better investment results if they got a punch early in life and you're very interested in investments. You're going to get like, 20 investments in your life and then you have to quit and put all your money in cash. He said if everybody was subject to those rules, the investment process would be better. I think that's right. I think, I think people would do better. The system, the people who are milking the money for fees and commissions, they lather up always anything that make the fees and commissions run liberally. And it gets to be the orthodoxy, that that's what people do. And of course, it, it shouldn't be the orthodoxy among sensible people that control money for the long term. And, but it is the orthodoxy. And just think of the end. Then, of course, what happens, accident of history. We have a liquid stock market, which is two things at once. It's a place for people who are doing long-term investment rationally to go and make their transactions. And a place for another bunch of people to do casino gambling. We mix them up totally. It's an absolutely insane thing for the country to work. The country would work a lot better if we didn't mix up. It's like we mixed up running the army with child prostitution or something. It's, 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 it's ludicrously crazy. But that's what we did. And everybody's making money out of it, loves it this way. The incentives are aligned. It's, 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 it's just awful. <laughs> Now, I will say this, the poker tournaments are fashionable. People love this craze for poker now. 
the bricks tournaments and the, the gambling instinct is really strong. People love gambling. They love gambling. And the trouble with it is like taking heroin. A certain percentage of the people, they start just going to ruin. It's that addictive. Anyway, it's crazy we ended up with this. It's absolutely crazy. Civilization would have a lot better. Now, we do get a certain amount of craziness in real estate, which doesn't have a liquid market. It isn't like you wouldn't have a lot of excesses of speculation, even if the stock market was as illiquid as real estate. But it wouldn't be as bad as it is now. Now it's just going for certain. When I was in the Harvard Law School, it was a rare day when they traded a million shares a day. Maybe that happened once, once or twice a year. Now they changed billions of shares. And the computers are trading with one another. One computer algorithm is trying to outwit the other. Now, what earthly good is it for our country to have this, to make the casino part of capitalism more and more efficient and more and more attractive, more and more seductive? It's, it's an insane public policy. On the other hand, I think the chances of changing it are practically zero. And in it, causes terrible things. You can argue that it caused the Great Depression. And the Great Depression brought in Hitler, which came pretty close to ending the civilized world. So I think this stuff is quite serious. And, but I don't think we can do much about it. So we caused the global financial crisis. Yes, yes, the global financial crisis, absolutely. I think if we hadn't had to read the way we did, which we've never done on this scale before, we might have had one of the most unholy financial messes we were headed for something that was going to try to become a Great Depression. And what they do is they feed on themselves. The process of capitalism automatically speeds up in both booms and depressions. And the thing feeds on itself for a while. So it's like autocatalysis in chemistry. It's just automatic that you get this speed up in both directions, which makes it very, very dangerous, not just to the individual investors, but to the whole civilization. I am not being casual when I say that Adolf Hitler's rise came in part because of the Great Depression. He never would have been Chancellor of Germany without that. And the Great Depression came from excesses, which in many ways aren't as bad as those we have now. And with those cheerful thoughts, we should go on to the next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask a question about the Fed, but I'm going to move off of that. Uh, in the ease of, of uh, intervention and uh, acting like heroin, but capital allocation enormously important for the compounding over time. The role of concentration you discussed, and, and if you have intelligent capital allocation with intelligent concentration, that can lead to outsized returns over time. All of that comes back to the point about temperament that you mentioned earlier. That's something that you and I discussed even the first time that we met. What, we have some students in the room, what personal temperament factors do you value the most and do you think have attributed to your and Warren's success the most and is there one trait do you think that's helped you the most as an investor? I almost worship reason. You can argue that Henry Sandlin did too and certainly Warren Buffett does too. So the people I know that are good, they almost, they, they feel you have a duty to be as, become as wise as you can be by constantly studying things and thinking about it. And that, I think it was partly temperamental, and partly it was family example in my case. My grandfather Munger, whose name I told bear, was a self-made, self-educated man who was a damn genius. And I watched him and his life worked pretty, pretty well. He, he did not make many mistakes. Is there a time you enjoy investing most? Well, that's an interesting thing. It's, it's the sowing 
when you're almost sure to win. The most fun is the reaping. And I'm not sure that I'm enjoying the sowing. I like them both, but I, I, I think I really like the sowing better than the reaping. When you know you had a nail in it for every single transaction every day, that's a very satisfying feeling. Boy, Mike, to tell the story about the bet you had with friends about who could double their money the fastest, and it would sometimes be August and sometimes May and so forth. Well, we all had some foolish stretches as young men. You <laughs> <laughs> were saying that in complimentary fashion, to be clear, but... <laughs> no, no, no. By the time I knew Warren, he was a very good investor. Well, lots of discipline. But it was so easy for him just to buy these loaded laggards. He made so much money, of course he would keep doing it. And you can argue that it was a conglomerate boom that forced him to liquidate his partnership. He didn't like a world where people were going crazy and the people were making the money were crap all of And he just quit. It's kind of interesting to think about modern day Berkshire, obviously, was running a Geiger counter, you had blue chip stamps, and you had diversified retailing, all three of which, you know, more or less don't exist. Or significantly about Well, the, the, the money and wealth remains, but the businesses are gone. Right. They were never going to last. But we run so much money out of them that we were. And, and by the way, that still works. I think it's a little harder. I think Warren had the perfect time to be the value investor in those early days. I remember he bought some little insurance company once at one time, one time. I couldn't buy very much, you know, occasional share or two. When I was buying some interest businesses at one time, when we bought in the most amounts of our stock was in 74, 75, and so on. That was a very good time to be buying. That was the worst crunch in 50 years. And we were very lucky to have money on hand at that time. Most people, we don't have tons of money to invest in the bottom of these booms. We're all in on We've been in it for a long time. Right. We just ride it out. My virtual stock has gone down 50% three times in my life. That's one of the most successful examples you can find of something that works, but it's still. And of course, can you imagine an ordinary investment management firm saying we don't mind going down 30%? Right. They'd be in terror that all be fired. Uh, and that means that 95% of the big time conventional investing, they're closet indexes. And that again is a deep moral compromise driven by incentives that none of us can do anything about. It's almost as ridiculous as having a stock market, which is also a gambling parlor. And they can't avoid it. They, they would say, I can't do it. And the university endowment officers also have to be closet indexers by the standards of university endowment. I guarantee you one thing that we're not. I guarantee you one thing that single would never have been. Was a closet index. Probably you said many times, look at the system, look at the outcomes, and I'll show you the incentives. Yeah, the incentives. Are, the incentives are just driving it. You take the modern system of investment, I would say the modern big time investment banking, the shift into the shadow banks and the other forms of private equity. It's, they're just so huge and there's so much money and so much wealth being created. And it's just crazy, they just want to get in on it. And so it's bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But there's a lot of closet indexing in that too. They all want to do the same thing. It's not my scene, no, we're not going there. I want to get to index funds in a second, but before I do, I don't want to leave this topic about compounders. So one last question on this for everyone. So Einstein, 
called compound interest the eighth wonder of the world. Warren has said, find someone hardworking, intelligent, and honest. If you don't have the third, run for the hills. Don't worry about the first two. You've spoken about the value of temperament, staying rational this morning. Warren talks about entering a zero into a multiplicative series. And you talk about avoiding path dependencies, Lollapalooza, finding Lollapalooza effects, and the power of delayed gratification. Aren't all of these forms of maximizing compounding in a qualitative form? Well, sure, of course. It was so obvious to me when I was practicing law. If I helped some businessman do some dumb kind of transaction and I got a fee, how could that be a potential compared to making transactions like he was making and making them correctly? Of course, there's some there's huge potential if you can do the compounding correctly. But of course, it's very hard to do. The competition is very, very intense. And you have to stay out of the seductive craziness that goes on around you at a time when there are huge incentive pressures. And they aren't just incentive pressures. We all like to do what other people are doing. None of us wants to move to the North Pole and sit there for a <laughs> we all like to be in pleasant places like Beverly Hills having an expensive breakfast. <laughs> I'll come back to index funds now. You recently made some comments about index funds and a particular emperor. There's a big movement toward everything ESG, et cetera, et cetera, with these uh, ISS and Glass Lewis and so forth. I hate that. I regret Glass Lewis as a protection racket. They, they, they create the hazard and then they sell the protection. It's like a mafia. <laughs> and, by the way, nobody in Glasgow thinks there's anything wrong with it. We live in a world where you, you could actually go into a business as evil as that and think you're doing the Lord's work. But, you know, Hitler thought he was doing the Lord's work. You know, he last, so it's like we have a record of his last thought in the bunker. You know what it was? The German people, it turned out, didn't deserve their good rule. It was their fault, not his. I think you jumped to the end of my question, which was basically that Paul, you know, and Paul Graham recently had this fantastic piece titled Heresy on the value of not shutting down outlier opinions, the dangers of going down that path, and so forth, uh, which obviously comes back to some degree to Germany as well. If uh, Mark Andreessen, actually, I don't know if you saw this, had a funny tweet the other day about the irony of index funds. I don't know if anyone saw this in this room. He says they lack the competence to pick stocks, but possess the competence to redesign society. I know that. I, it's such a joke. There are a lot of people who think they would run the world. But they'd run the world by eliminating stupid things like vaccines. and steal the first thousand of a machine gun, you know, out of a prison. You know, there are a lot of crazies out there. I feel like it's an agency issue where net-net index funds provide better performance at lower fees, as Warren and yourself have pointed out, but that this is just a standard agency issue, and, and you, we actually use different vector on the very hyper-helpers and middlemen that you and Warren have warned everyone about. When the Morgan Bank got everybody into the Nifty 50, by the way, they only charge a quarter of a point for that. In other words, that whole investment management, they were the leaders of the investment management in the United States. And went on for, what, 20 years, more or less. They charged a quarter of a point, and everybody got these fabulous results. Because it was a blue sky high, but it was an interesting period to watch. And it's hard to have a similar thing when you're taking an index of 1,500, 1,000 stocks, and it's most of the market. So it'll work for a while, but eventually, if you did too much indexing, it would, it would have no chance of working. It would be the Nifty 50 all over again. It's been said soft will lead the world and that AI will lead software. And 
we've talked a lot about the Carnegies and the Rockefellers and the Mellons, who had these unbelievable businesses, but they were massively capital intensive, earning single digits of returns and so forth and so on. But had yeah, but they, but they got rich because they did it so long. Right. And they caught. You can argue that Rockefeller, after all the first 30 or 40 years, they sold kerosene for lighting at night and dominated it all over the world. And as that business died, with Edison and electricity and so forth, along came the end of her combustion engine running the automobiles and Drexel program. It was way better than their old women. So you can argue they were just damn lucky that they, if they were forced out of one business, God gave them a better business. And they had the positions in all the big oil fields to, to ride it out. And they kept inventing new technologies. So whatever oil they thought was there was really a little more. And the price of oil kept going up and up. What's interesting now about that is that nobody thinks it's illegal for a bunch of sovereign nations to get hit and have a cartel on producing their own oil. And everybody's going, can't happen because after all, they're a bunch of dumb this and dumb that. And, but it could happen. And you could argue that if so, it would be a good business. As long as the cartel lasts. <laughs> yes. Well, <yeah, yeah. laughs> the other interesting that's similar is there are only, what, three or four players in the making the uh, potash fertilizer. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing to watch. Yeah. And I don't know how it's going to play out. But Russia and Ukraine being one of them. Yeah, well, yeah, I see. Nobody knows. But there are going to be some sort of cartel-like things done by governments, and nobody will do anything about those. But somebody will make money by predicting it. So. The weak link is always for a cartel to break, though, is the yes, incentive for someone to cheat. Oh, of course. Right. So we have $10 trillion in market cap amongst five phenomenal businesses that really don't require any capital whatsoever. When you look at that contrast today to what Carnegie's and Mellon's and Rockefeller's built, it's all obvious in hindsight. Do you have any opinion, without getting into names specific or anything, on whether those moats will be as durable? Well, I think the temperaments of these, the ones I find the most interesting in many ways are the melons. And I think those temperaments still work. I think if you're like the melons, or Carnegie, or even Paul Rockefeller, it still works. They were pretty hardworking, aggressive, talented people. But I, there was some look at it. You start to think about a Carnegie Steel, that's who it steals. It eventually went to hell. Absolutely went to hell. But he wasn't building something that worked wonderful. Now Rockefeller's empire lasted a lot longer. You can argue that Rockefeller's empire was the only business of the old days that really became a giant and still lasted. Everybody else, it's all just a type of mortality. They all die or went or went around the most people in this room probably don't know, we actually Berkshire owned part of uh, Rocket Union Tank Car, was part of Rockefeller's operation. Yeah, absolutely. And Berkshire's pipelines, Rockefeller had a lot of pipelines. That's actually a good precedent to the inflation that we're seeing in the environment. And Some of us have lived through it, but not in the same way that you and Warren saw the destructive inflation of the 70s. What should investors be thinking about when looking at companies with potential inflation in the 70s as a backdrop. Not saying it will, but I don't think most people are going to do wonderfully well with inflation. I think most of us would be way better off, at least the people who have any money, would be way better off if there weren't any inflation. And so it's just a question of how most people are not going to profit from it. Most people are going to suffer. The idea is to suffer as little as you 
But I think it's the nature of things. A bunch of Democratic politicians will eventually wreck too much money. Now, in my life, I would argue that what we have now is so valuable. The fact that the, the currency went down by 80 or 90 percent, the purchasing power over the course of this last 100 years of achievement, it was worth having the depreciation of the currency to get the growth. I don't think it was a bad bargain for civilization so far. On the other hand, the Weimar inflation that eventually contributed to Hitler's rise, that's, that's a different problem. And to get into that, I, I have no, it won't be my problem, that's the one I have. <laughs> <laughs> it may be your problem. <laughs> the answer is always to find the best business you can at the best price, regardless. And capital intensity is certainly an aspect of that. Price and power. Yes, but think of what's as old as I am. Just think of what I've seen Wayne. All the big department stores, all the big newspaper monopolies, U.S. Steel, Alcoa, pretty much all the airlines. Yeah, pretty much everything. The auto manufacturers. Yes, the auto manufacturers. Yes, compared to what they wanted. General Motors stood in the world like a colossus, and it eventually wiped out its own shareholders and part of its own workers' pensions. Well, think about GE. Well, GE is one of the worst cases of all because I knew Jeff Welch. He was likable and he was intelligent, but he went a little crazy trying to do well in the system. He was very competitive. He wanted to win in golf, he wanted to win business and so forth. And he just let it, he got into that wretched excess. And in the end, he was lying about what he'd been accomplished. And I think that that book, Lights Out, which chronicles the decline of G, ought to be required reading. Never been in school in the country. It won't be because they don't want to offend you. <laughs> but it should be. And if anybody has not read Lights Out, oh. you, you, you should buy it and read it. Now, there's a creative destruction that you've seen. Oh, it's just awesome. Do you, do you feel, I think the standard thought is that it's accelerating because of software and computers? And no, I think it would have been difficult if you never had software. I bet they contributed to a lot of the change which destroyed some people. I think capitalism is that it destroys a lot of people. It's the nature of evolution, a lot of people die. The death is part of the creative process. Do you feel like that rate of change is accelerating? Well, that's a very interesting question. So I think you can hear that in two ways. You can make the case for yes, and you can make the case for no. The case for no is, of course, is that most of the basic needs are nobody will satisfy. The average life expectancy is 80 years for a male or something in America. He gets color television, jet travel, modern medicine, air conditioning. It's pretty much all the reasonable wants that a man can have. And it's hard to even imagine something that is more important than what's already achieved. So in that sense, the great majority of the progress may be behind us. But in another sense, it's just amazing what they keep finding out and keep doing. I'm not all that impressed by the fact that when insurance and underwriting a little bit better, that's just, it's like tweaking an automobile engine to give you an extra horsepower. But what's already been achieved is just absolutely unbelievable. It all happened in the last 200 years. 200 years ago, we'd all been out in the field doing ghastly boring work and never leaving the little valley we were born in. I mean, fungus we couldn't fix. Watching our children die of nasty disease, and it was not an easy life. This has lost the power of human ingenuity and compounding, that there were more people that had been born and died in this world 
before 200 years ago in all of human history, and yet 99.9% of the innovation acts the wheel on fire and gets us to have been created in the last 200 years. Yeah, it's exactly what's happened. And of course, that makes some people optimistic. But you know, I think is there going to be some major calamity for the human race in the next 100 years? Or what the chances of a really major calamity? I don't know about you, but I certainly it's at least 10%. I think flirting as close to nuclear war as we are now with these paranoid rulers and these dumb. It was an old history in mankind. You go in and somebody else, we had an old sport of white centers that organized mankind has always wanted to go take away the other guy's property and his wives and God knows what all of them are. And kill the guy if he was subjecting. But they did it over and over again. Then they got into the habit, which was followed by both Genghis Khan and by Cromwell, who was the Lord Protector of England. Cromwell would come to a nice city in Ireland, he'd say, if I have to waste my soldiers killing all these people, because you're fighting back, I'm going to kill every damn one of you. And I mean it. And if they didn't give up the city, they just killed them all. 